Before we start, I want to call your attention to a couple of things in the bulletin. They're on the back page. One is on December 7th, we'll be welcoming uh, several new members to our church. That's always a fun thing to do. And uh, we'll, those that are here, the, all, all the names will be in the bulletin. Those that are here, we'll bring them up and pray for them so you can find out who the new members are. And the second thing is on December 14th, the Sunday after that, we'll be having a baptism Sunday. So if any of you desire to be baptized, um, let me know, let Mark know, call the office. doesn't matter who you talk to on staff, just let us know, and we will uh, arrange for that. That's always a fun Sunday as well. We lift up all this for those of you that have not been here. This is where the baptistry is. We go down and do it, and we invite people to come up on the stage and watch. It's a great time. Children, and, and those of you that have never seen a baptism before, we just say, come on up and pay attention and watch what happens. So um, if you'd like to be baptized, let us know. We are in the middle of a series in Philippians where we're talking about citizenship and we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? Um, to connect the dots, we did a series earlier on generosity as it relates to your finances. We talked about that. And then we moved from there into this series where we're talking about generosity as it relates to ourselves how do we give ourselves and what does it mean to be a citizen and to sacrifice for others? This is going to lead us into Thanksgiving, which is coming up very soon, and into Advent, where we will continue to focus on the work of Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. Last week, we, uh, we spent time in Philippians 2, one of the best, most well-known Christological passages in the Bible. And we, we worked through the whole idea of Christ, although he is God, became a human, became a slave, took on the form of a slave to reach out to us. And we're going to spend more time talking about that today. The next couple of weeks today and next week, we're going to be looking at what is our responsibility as citizens of this new country. But first, I'm going to read you something. In 1519, Spanish conquistador Hernando Cortez landed in Mexico on the shores of the Yucatan with only one objective, seize the great treasures that were known to be there and were being hoarded by the Aztecs. Cortez was committed to his mission and his quest for riches is legendary. He was an excellent motivator. He convinced more than 500 soldiers and 100 sailors to set sail from Spain to Mexico, commanding 11 ships to take the world's richest treasure. The historic question is how a small band of Spanish soldiers arrived in a strange country and swiftly brought about the overthrow of a large and powerful empire that was in power for over six centuries. For Cortez, the answer was easy. It was all or nothing. A complete and total commitment. Here's how Cortez got the buy-in from the rest of his men. He took away the option of failure. It was conquer and be heroes, enjoy the spoils of victory, or die. When Cortez and his men arrived on the shores of the Yucatan, he rallied the men for one final pep talk before leading his men into battle and then uttered three words that changed the course of history, burn the ships. Now, more work has been done since this was developed, we understand it probably had more to do with scuttling the ships, and he may not have burned them right away, 
he, um, he may have waited because uh, some of the men rose up once they realized what they were up against, a large force, and uh, they began to consider mutiny and going back home. And he did, said, destroy or scuttle the ships. But the principle is the same. Burn the only way home. He met with resistance from his men. Burn the ships, he repeated. And then he uttered these words. If we are going home, we are going home in their ships. With that, Cortez and his men burned their own ships. And by burning their own ships, the commitment level of the men was raised to a whole new level a level much higher than any of the men, including Cortez, could have possibly imagined. So the question before us today, what does legitimate patriotism look like? What does it look like in our lives? We understand the concept of patriotism because we're all citizens of the United States. I think most of us are. And so what does legitimate patriotism look like if we are citizens of heaven? Do we have the right to privacy? Is that American cultural right or is that a biblical right? I would argue that it's an American cultural right. Because from beginning to end in scriptures, when you look at brokenness and sin, they were meant to be dealt with, uh, brought into the light to be surfaced. The problem is, is that we have created communities where it's not safe to do that. Am I right? Most of us feel fear or shame when we come forward and say, I'm struggling with sin. That's why I keep pushing us to develop a community that is safe, where people can say, I'm failing, I'm struggling. And that we can adopt the attitude of Psalm 145. God helps those who have fallen. And he raises up those who are bowed down. Picture somebody bowed down. Heavy load. Or as Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Famous verse. Why is it that we create a heavier burden? So I don't think that um, the right to privacy is a biblical right. And so um, I personally don't practice it. I practice discretion. I have people here in this church already that I can be transparent with. Tim Glasgow is one of them. As chairman of the elders, he and I have coffee about every other week to talk through things. I want some people here to know the struggles that I have. That's the safest thing for you is to have a pastor who's honest. And I am. How about the right to freedom of speech? Do we have that right as Christians? Or is that American cultural right? I'm just giving you a couple of examples of what this means, this whole concept of legitimate patriotism. I do not believe we have the right to freedom of speech. I believe we have the privilege and obligation to use our words wisely and well. A third of James is devoted to that. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. You can't say whatever you want. But only such a word that brings encouragement to the one who's listening. So, no, you don't have the right to walk around saying whatever you want. We already saw last week in Philippians, do all things without grumbling and complaining. No, God gave you a mouth for a reason. To bring about within the context of relationship in the lives of others a sense of hope 
a sense of security, a sense of safety, a sense of protection, that sense of, I'm on your side. Encourage one another daily, Hebrews says several times. So I think the whole idea of freedom of speech, while I enjoy it as an American, I understand that there is a higher responsibility as spelled out in the word of God, that's to use this mouth very carefully, to use it in the best interest of the people around me. So those are just two examples of what legitimate patriotism might look like. We're going to move more into that. Last week we saw that Paul's idea of a new mindset is based on the the sacrifice and slavery or enslavement of Christ. He became a slave for our benefit. And we mentioned last week that, uh, that although his sacrifice on the cross is an event in time, his sacrifice of becoming a human is for the rest of eternity. That's the Christian Orthodox doctrine or teaching of the hypostatic union. Fully God, fully human, united in one body forever. So his sacrifice for us is eternal, not only in value, but in actual sacrifice. He has taken on himself the form of a slave for all of eternity. So you find him in the New Jerusalem, standing in the temple. You'll be able to talk to him, eat with him, have discussions, hug him, ask him all the questions you want to ask. That's how much he loves us. That is the perfect example of this new mindset that we are to have, Christ is. So today and next week, we're going to look at what is our responsibility as citizens of this new country or this new creation, if you will. The moment Christ was raised from the dead, he ushered in the new creation. And you are part of it. If you've had the privilege of believing in Jesus, you are part of it. And what does that look like for us to be part of that new creation? The wonderful privilege of being given life. The wonderful privilege of being able to share with those that have not yet made it into the kingdom. What does that look like? You know the way. Each of you know the way. You heard me share last week that I have a meeting with a young man. Um, never talked to a pastor. Doesn't, um, doesn't go to church. Doesn't know anything about Christianity. He's sitting in my office in a church building asking me, do you think there's a God? He doesn't know. <laughs> doesn't know what being a pastor means. And uh, I just chuckled and I said, I do. I certainly do. And he says, do you know how to find him? I said, yeah, come with me. I know the way. Let's start hanging out together and talking, which we're doing. I can show you the way. I've been there many times. You know the way, don't you? Every one of you knows the way into this kingdom. What a privilege that we get to, in, to invite others to come with us on that journey. Come and see what I have seen. Come find what I have found. Now, when we were in this, when we were in this series on um, generosity, last series, I told you at that time that from my perspective, you look like a very generous church, and I'm grateful for that. But I'm not God. I'm not the Spirit. I can't look inside your hearts and tell you. So you remember I encouraged each of you, and I would do it again, to just reflect on it. Look in the mirror and ask yourself the question, am I generous? You might be greedy for all I know. I, don't, I can't tell. Look in the mirror and answer the question yourself. 
We're going to do that in this series for the next two weeks as well. It looks to me like you're very sacrificial, that at the core you love to serve. But the truth is I can't tell because I'm not God. So I'm going to encourage each of you to look in the mirror and ask the question, am I really self-serving? When pain hits, when things don't go well, when things do go well, am I really self-serving or am I committed to others? By the way, the temptation in life is when things go well and when things don't go well. Ask those who win the lottery. With the average amount of time they have that money, it's gone. When people inherit things from their parents or grandparents, it's gone very quickly. Ask any of the financial people in our church. So a blessing can be just as much of a temptation. So look in the mirror and ask yourself the question before we start on this journey. Okay, if you want to follow along, I'm in Hebrew, I mean, uh, excuse me, Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. He just finished talking about Christ, and then he says, out of nowhere, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. What's that all about? He just broke up his whole argument and says, I'm going to send Timothy to you. Most of his other books, that occurs at the, either the very beginning or the very end of the book, usually the very end. I'm going to send these people to you. But why did Paul stick it right in the middle? I think it's because he, he wants to give us an example. He's on a roll. He's talking about his own struggles being in prison and in chains. Then he moves to Christ and what Christ did for us as, an ex as the supreme example. And then he just keeps going. He says, I have two more people standing right here that are living the life that I want these Philippians to get to understand what it means to sell out for Jesus. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Wow. All the people that Paul knew, and he has no one else. Where do you fit into this picture? If we needed to send somebody, would you be one of the ones we would consider who would be concerned about the welfare exclusively of the other person? For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. All right. He just said, I have no one else like him who will be concerned for your welfare. Second sentence, not those of Jesus Christ. See the connection? Your welfare is the same as looking out for the interests of Jesus. Or as Jesus said, Matthew 24, 25, if you give a cup of cold water to a thirsty person, you're giving it to me. You might remember that. If you turn down helping someone, it is no different than refusing to help Jesus. That's the basic message. And Paul makes that connection right here. Then he goes on 23, I hope therefore to send him to you as soon as I can, uh, as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. So he presents Timothy, if you look in verse uh, 22, he has proved himself. He has served with me in the work of the gospel. Now that language we're used to, but that language didn't make a lot of sense to them. They, only, they had a two-class system. There were those who were wealthy and the elite and free. Um, and there were those who were slaves, typically. 
And so when they see that same word, what's either translated slavery or service, the same Greek word, they would have read into that slavery. And so Timothy has slaved himself for the gospel, if I can use it as a verb. That's what Timothy has done. He has slaved himself selfish, selflessly for the sake of the gospel. But then he goes on to Epaphroditus in verse 25. But I think it is necessary to send back to Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you in distress because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. In fact, he almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord. He's alive. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. So we have Timothy who has slaved very diligently for the people. And then you have Epaphroditus, who almost died for the sake of the gospel. Those are the two words that are used of Christ in the passage before. He came as a slave, and he slaved himself for us. But he did die. He did die. So the question, pause. These two examples... Does this represent your heart? You willing to slave yourself for others? You willing to sacrifice to the point of death if God calls you to? That's the question. So let's move on into chapter 3 and let's talk about the keys to legitimate patriotism. I'll just summarize the whole chapter. One idea, putting earthly priorities behind us. Let's put our earthly priorities behind us. But first, he gives a warning. Don't be fooled. Evil people are still evil. He picked up where he left off in chapter 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write these, the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Key phrase. He's going to take that phrase and expand it for the rest of the chapter. Put no confidence in the flesh. So let's just remember that evil people are still evil. Even though he said some preach Christ out of goodwill and good intentions. Others preach Christ out of envy and mean to do me harm. I don't care, said that in chapter one, except that Christ is being proclaimed and in that I rejoice. But then he brings wisdom back into it and says, beware of those people. Don't forget. Don't forget. Evil people are still evil. At one level, we are to rejoice when Christ is preached, but at another level, we are to beware of their motives. They will try to hurt us. They will. They will try to shame us as a church. There will be some who will try to shut us down, 
try to restrict what we can do. Evil people are still evil. Let's not forget that. But then he moves on from the warning and says, but what is our proper attitude? What should our thinking be about this legitimate patriotism, this being a citizen of heaven rather than earth? What does that look like? And he's going to say that the accomplishments in this life are insignificant compared to the glory of heaven. They are significant, and I'll come back to that in a minute for specific reasons. But compared to the, the eternal weight of glory, they're not that significant. Let me jump into verse 4. He just said that he put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself, this is Paul speaking, have reasons for such confidence. If others think they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. I'm an Israelite. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, the best of the best. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. Now you're getting near the top. Probably he was in training to be part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling group in Israel. As for zeal, a persecutor of the church. And here it is. As for the righteousness based on the law, faultless. Faultless. You could look at all 613 commands and find nothing to peg Paul with. Faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. All those accomplishments are behind me. They're behind me. I consider them garbage, rubbish, worthless, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, there he says it again, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Okay, pause. Can you hear the, the relief? The relief? I have a good friend of mine who's very close to the end of her life. Been friends for 30 years, I'm not sure. Ever since I've known her, she's been a missionary in inner city Denver. Um, she's uh, She's a... Uh, single mom, and um, has a daughter and a granddaughter and now great-great-grandchildren. And she's devoted her life to helping single moms, um, addicts, homeless, inner-city Denver. And um, just a delightful friend. I just love her to, to death. Thursday, Nancy and I went and visited her in the hospital. She's in the final stages of stage four cancer. And um, all of her ribs on one side are now fractured because of their weak, because of all the chemo and radiation. And she just grinning from ear to ear. So I asked her, as I have two or three times on this journey, what's it like to be at the end of life? I'm not there yet. I don't think I am. I might be. I could die today, but I don't know about it. But you know about it. You've been given your death sentence, determination. It's coming. The days are numbered now. What's it like? And you know what she said? She said, just like this, I did it. I did it. She said, I made it to the end of life, and my faith is real. It's intact. I withstood every test that God threw at me. My faith is genuine. 
Isn't that wonderful? If God gives me the blessing of knowing my death is imminent, I hope that's my response. She said, now I understand Jesus on the cross. And the last thing he said was, it is finished. He did it. You see, the righteousness based on the law, it's a slave. I mean, it's a master driving you to slavery. It's driving you to commands. Obey this, obey that. Follow this rule, follow that rule. Paul says in Colossians, if you've been seated with Christ, raised with Christ, I mean, why do you submit yourself to these decrees? Why? Jesus reduced the law down to two commands, love God and love people. Paul reduced it only to one. Love people. He doesn't mention the first command. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free, Galatians 5. On and on and on we could go with this. The righteousness based on the law is following the way of the Pharisees. You have to obey this rule. You have to obey that rule. It's the opposite of creating a culture of safety. Sure, their rules are there for a reason. I'm not going to disregard those. We want people to understand that this is for our best interest to mature in Christ, to listen to all these things. But when somebody falls, do we lift them up? Or do we ostracize them or criticize them? When somebody is bowed down by the burdens of sin, do we help raise them and support them? That's what God does, Psalm 145. So right here, this is a little snapshot of the gospel. I want to know Christ. The verse before that, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. I want this freedom. I want to be able to say, yes. You see, when you enter into the kingdom, that's what should happen. Christ came to bring us abundant joy, shalom, peace, knowing full well that we are going to struggle with brokenness. But here it is right here. I want that peace. I want that joy. I want the relief. I want to feel it that I made it into the kingdom by God's grace. And now I have the privilege of helping my friends come to know about this experience. That's what church should all be all about. Let's run to the people who are struggling and falling. Let's don't criticize and ostracize them. I want to know Christ, verse 10. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. We've talked a couple of times about this is language that Paul uses over and over again to describe the li our life. When we go into a downward trend, we are experiencing death. When somebody comes alongside and helps us and the spirit moves and we start to surface out of that again, we begin to experience a form of resurrection. So our very lives that we live give us a picture of what ultimately is going to happen when we do die and we wake up with the Lord and we receive a new body, the most wonderful thing beyond our comprehension. All I can say is it's going to be spectacular. I'm an asthmatic. I have been my whole life. Every day, not, not looking for your pity here, this is the life I live. Every day, I live life as if somebody's sitting on my chest. I have to have medication to even come close to breathing normal. 
And it still feels like that. I look forward to the day when I can run. I'm going to run for a thousand years when I get to the new earth. In fact, that's the first thing I'm going to do. Just take off running. Forrest Gump. <laughs> because I can. I can barely make it across the parking lot now running. All of you have something that you're carrying with you. It's going to be wonderful. So this whole idea of resurrection and death, this is real life. When you are heading in that downward spiral into sin and depression and brokenness and hurt, that feels like death, doesn't it? Boy, it's hard to overcome it. But if we come alongside with the power of the Spirit and you begin to spiral back out again, that feels like resurrection. He uses this metaphor all throughout the scriptures. So here's a question I have for you. What have you accomplished that you're proud of? I, I have my list. It's captured in a resume, some of it. The elders in the transition team got a chance to look at it very, 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 very closely. And it asked me uh, 15 hours of interview questions on all that. I have my list. What's on your list that you're proud of? Here's the more important question. What would it take to change your perspective about those accomplishments? What would it take? I'm not saying disregard them because they actually serve a very important role. If you look back on your accomplishments, you begin to see one of the ways that God has shaped you as a person. He has uniquely equipped each of us to live life in this kingdom as citizens of heaven, a legitimate patriotism, and to invite our friends to come with us. Come and see. Come see what I have seen. So your, your accomplishments are very important because that's what God has used to shape you. I get that. But it's not for you to rest on your laurels. It's not for you to boast about. You're to put them behind you because that's insignificant compared to what's coming. So what would it take to change your perspective? I can't answer the question for you. I can only ask it. You have to answer it. What's in the way? What's in the way? Then he goes on from there in verse 12 and talks about what should our response be. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold for that of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Jesus grabbed me, and now I am taking hold of him and what he said. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, this is the world we all live in right now. None of us are perfect. So here it is. Forgetting what is behind and straining, working as hard as I can, stretching out toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which has God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of these things. That should be our attitude. Living out our faith on a daily basis in a broken world. That's what it is, being faithful. That's what he's talking about. Living out our faith. Has Christ grabbed your heart? That's what Paul said. He, took, he grabbed hold of me. I can tell you he's grabbed hold of me. I can also tell you I've seen your pastor that every day and our staff, but I'll speak for myself. 
Every day I get up and I pray, Lord, help me to bring glory and honor to your name. Every morning, it's the first thing I pray. Help me to live a life of faith. Not only is it my best interest, it's in your best interest that I do that. Has he grabbed hold of your heart? Is that your attitude? If so, your life has already begun to move in a new direction. Forget the past. Forget it. Reach for the prize. Go for it. Sell out for Jesus. That's the message. Sell out for Jesus. Now we raised the concept of suffering in the last chapter, last couple of weeks. That is one of God's primary ways of connecting us to the people around us and revealing his glory. Because the one thing we all share in common is struggle, strife, and pain. All right? That's the one thing we share with the world. The world understands this like nothing else. And if we connect there, if God brings, allows suffering or brings suffering into our life, it becomes a way that we can connect with people. It's one of the ways we can invite them into this wonderful kingdom because they get it. That's something they get. And if they watch us struggle well, it means something to them. If not, what's the value of the suffering? It just becomes a waste of time. Put our accomplishments behind us and live out our citizenship. He concludes with this. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Now we're back in the present day. We have the written example of Paul. We have the living example of people right here in our church. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. If you're struggling to sell out for Jesus, find somebody that gets it and walk with them. Go with them. Go on their journey. Ask them. You'll figure it out. For I, as I have often told you before, now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. He, starts, he concludes where he starts. Their destiny is their destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. Leave it behind you. Leave it behind you. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That's our response. Here's the rest of the Cortez story. Amazingly, the men conquered the Aztecs and had succeeded in something where others had been unsuccessful for 600 years, six centuries. With the victory, Cortez and his men took the treasure. Why did they win? They had no escape, no fallback position. They had no choice. It was succeed or die. Their ships were destroyed. They had no way to get back. Their backs were to the wall. To really succeed, you must have an attitude much like that of Cortez and his men. They didn't have a crutch or fallback position. They frankly didn't have any options. It was simply succeed or die. Pretty strong position, isn't it? Burn the ships. Pretty strong. How would you like to be engaged in fighting someone with that level of motivation and commitment? So the question I want to leave you with is what, metaphorically, what ship is in your life that needs to be burned? 
What is it? What's the obstacle that's keeping you from selling out? Going for broke? Leaving it all on the table? What is it? I can't answer the question for you. I only know my own. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, thank you for the incredible story of your son who sacrificed all of it, everything for us. Who left behind the glory of the throne room with you for the suffering and pain of death for us. Thank you for that. Lord, I pray for each of us, myself included, whatever it is metaphorically that or just real life, that's whatever it is that's keeping us from selling out for your gospel and your son. Help us to see that clearly, Lord, so we can put it behind us. In Jesus' name, amen.